This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is New Books and Science Fiction. The Americans are good at starting wars, but not so good at stopping them edition. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and today I'm excited to have Omar el Akkad on the show. His debut novel, American War, has been widely praised and has the distinction of being one of those noteworthy science fiction books that makes numerous mainstream publications lists of best books of the year. American War was, for example, among the New York Times' 100 Most Notable Books, GQ's Best Books of 2017, and it was the top pick as the best book of the year, according to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. El Akkad was born in Cairo, Egypt, eventually moving to Canada, and he has worked as a journalist, covering everything from the Arab Spring to the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm delighted to have him on the line with me from his home near Portland, Oregon. Hi, Omar. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. Thank you so much for having me. American War is a lot of things, uh, but maybe it's first and foremost a coming-of-age story about a girl named Surratt Chestnut, who we meet when she's six, living on the edge of a territory in the American South known as the MAG, which uh, stands for, well, the M-A-G stands for Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia, and they have declared their independence once again from the North, this being the year 2075. And through her, you tell a story about war and terrorism. And I would like to talk about Surratt and what drew you to her as a protagonist. But I thought first maybe I would ask you what drew you to writing a novel about war and terrorism in the first place. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've so I've been on the road for basically the last seven months of 2017. Um ever since the book came out. And um, one of the things I've had to do is sort of establish in my mind what the closest thing to a Genesis moment was um, when I started writing this book. But as you know, and as I think anyone who, who, who works on a novel knows, it's never that clean cut. You know, there's never a moment where this happened, this happened, and then I decided to write a book. 
The closest thing I can think of is something that happened uh, a long time ago. Now it's, it's a sort of vague recollection I have from many years ago of um, watching this interview with, with a foreign affairs expert. Uh, I don't remember if it was on CNN or, or one of the other news networks, but it, it was an interview with one of these people that they routinely bring in to sort of explain the world. And the interview was taking place in the aftermath of a set of protests that had happened in um, in Afghanistan. Uh, local villagers were protesting against the U.S. military presence there. And the question that was put to this gentleman was something like, you know, why do they hate us so much? And as part of his answer, he noted that sometimes the U.S. special forces have to go into these villages and conduct uh, nighttime raids looking for insurgents. And that when they do this, um, they'll sometimes, you know, ransack the houses or hold the women and children at gunpoint. And then he helpfully added, uh, you know, in Afghan culture, that sort of thing is considered very offensive. And I thought, you know, name me one culture on earth that, that wouldn't consider this offensive. Um, exactly. And that's when I first started. Yeah, I mean, it, it got me thinking about this notion of, of taking the wars that have defined the world in my lifetime and recasting them as elements that are very close to home um, or to the place, you know, the part of the world that I now call home. And I couldn't think of anything closer than, than a civil war where you're fighting yourself. So that was the sort of genesis of, of starting to think about the ideas that, that work their way into, into the book. Well, integral to the story is uh, what happens to Surratt, the, the young girl we meet when she is uh, just six. You know, she's this brave, very appealing Tom girl. And over the course of the story, she basically turns into a terrorist. And one of the things I found fascinating about her is that she never very clearly articulates what's driving her or what the cause is, rather. And I wonder if you could give some insight into her thinking. I mean, one thing I can't help but but note is that early on in the story, one of the first crimes against her personally or her family is committed, in fact, by the Southern rebels. And that's who she allies herself with. I mean, she's on the, the side of the South, and yet they're the ones who killed her father by setting off a bomb in a government building. And so I wondered if you could get us into her mind and what's what's going on with her. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up this idea of, of her being unable to, to clearly articulate um, her road down this path, which is a very dark path. You know, very few people have talked to me about that, but to, to me, it's one of the central points of this is that she has a hard time explaining it, um, explaining clearly why she is going down this road that, that I think, you know, at a certain point she understands will lead to absolute ruin. And this comes from, from the time I spent covering people who have gone down this road. I mean, I, I spent 10 years as a journalist, and the first big story I ever worked on was the story of... Um, what was called the Toronto 18 case, which was the, the biggest set of um, terrorism arrests in Canadian history. Uh, it happened about three days after I was hired at, at the national newspaper in Canada. And so I spent two years of my life writing about these kids. And some of them were kids. Some of them weren't even 18 years old who had grown up in the suburbs, had these, you know, very quintessentially North American upbringings uh, to immigrant parents um, who had sort of become radicalized. They, they'd gone from, you know, just regular kids at the high school out in the suburbs of Toronto to uh, these people who wanted to behead the prime minister and blow up Parliament Hill and that sort of thing. And, and one of the things you quickly come to discover is this notion that 
the idea of interrogating very closely your own motivations when you go down this road leads you to a place of contradiction. You realize that, that your motivations don't work. You know, you realize very quickly that the people who are who are guiding you down this road are often just in it to exploit you, that they're, the people you think are on your side are actually not on your side. And so, you know, the notion of Surratt's journey to me is, is she has trouble articulating why this is, why she is going down this road, but a lot of it boils down to this notion of, of her sense of agency being taken away from her. You know, she's someone who doesn't know where she belongs. She doesn't know what her stories are. Um, and then you add on top of that the sense that she has no control over the things she does, the things that are done to her. And that, to me, is the driving motivation. Um, you know, I think, I think we all have a pretty primal desire to, to have some control over our lives. And I think we're all liable to do some pretty dark things if that control is taken away from us. What about another character who plays a really major influence in her life, Albert Gaines? He seems to be a kind of person that I imagine exists in the world today. You know, if he were if he were around right now, I imagine he would be trying to engage an impressionable young person through social media or maybe maybe making friends with a despondent or disillusioned millennial through Facebook. But in Surratt's case, he works with her face-to-face. He visits her in a refugee camp where she is, and he creates a powerful bond with her. And I wondered what you know about those kinds of recruiters, because that's essentially what he is. He creates this bond to recruit her to go out and sow terror. Yeah, I mean, Albert Gaines to me is is a character who's sort of a microcosm of, of the motivations of the novel as a whole, um, which is to say, you know, he I, I could have made him cartoonishly evil. You know, I could have made him this sort of Cruella de Vil type character, um, but what I wanted was to make it difficult for the reader to, to, to fully sort of decide whether this man just wanted to exploit, uh, Surat Chestnut or whether he genuinely cared for her or whether both things were at play. Um, you know, he is, he's a charming human being, um, and, and he wields that charm, uh, very carefully and very deliberately. Um, He's also a coward in the sense that, you know, the things that he recruits people to do are not things that he is willing to do himself, which is a universal trait of these kinds of people. Um, but I wanted to make it a little bit ambiguous as to whether, you know, beneath all of that, he genuinely cared for the human beings that he was trying to um, essentially recruit to the cause of extremism. Um, I think deep down, he has that sense of, of, you know, this kind of fatherly sense to Surratt, but he's also um, just, a, you know, he's a kind of human being who who is very Machiavellian. Um, and I think both those things are at play um, in the relationship between those two characters. What does it take, in fact, to recruit a young person to make them... Uh, make the ultimate sacrifice for a cause? I mean, is that something that you as a journalist have covered or are familiar with in any research you might have done for the book? Yeah, I mean, I I became pretty intimately familiar with it during my career as a journalist because I would talk to people who who had direct experience with these kind of recruiters. I still remember 
um, being told this very strange story of um, one of the people who acted as a mentor to to one of the kids who eventually getting uh, eventually got uh, caught up in this in this terrorism plot. Um, he would take this kid out to the middle of the woods uh, where previously he had gone and dug a hole in the ground, uh, essentially a grave plot. And he would have the kid lie down in this open grave, you know, in the middle of the night in pitch black forest up north of Toronto and would tell him, you know, if you don't fight for your cause, you know, if you fight for your cause, you're going to paradise and, and you'll be a martyr and so on and so forth. Uh, if you don't fight for your cause, you're going to spend the rest of your life in this dark grave alone. And I still remember that story because at once it, it it's very powerful. And at the same time, it's also ludicrous. You know, anyone who puts their themselves in the place of that kid would immediately say, you know, I wouldn't buy any of this. This is ridiculous. But that moment came at the tail end of a very progressive, you know, months, years long period of radicalization which started at the very beginning with much, much simpler, more subtle things. You know, you would find out what this person, what this kid's insecurities are. You know, are they, do they feel that they're not um, religious enough? Do they feel that they're sinning? Do they feel like an outcast in their school or in their community? You'd find the insecurity and then you'd start to sort of exploit that. And then you would offer up hope. You know, this is a way to get around that. This is a way to become... Um, in the case of these kids, a good Muslim, or in the case of, of many other people that I that I covered, um, this this will make you important. You know, they may not like you in your high school, you may not have any friends, but this will make you, this will make them remember you. Um, and then you attack onto that um, a list of injustices committed against that person's community. You know, if they were religious, you would say, look at all these terrible things being done to your brothers and sisters. Uh, in in this religion, if they were nationalists, you would say, "Look at the ways in which your country is being humiliated." Um, you'd find those pressure points, and you'd begin to press on them. And if you did it gradually enough, you'd eventually get into a place where you could get someone to do something really, really evil. Um, you can't start at that endpoint, but you can eventually get there. Well, you do an amazing job of stripping away all the storytelling we have about war, you know, the trappings of it, the honor, the glory. I mean, this is really getting down. I mean, you used, you know, you, you called Albert Gaines Machiavellian. And that's kind of what I feel like you're exposing are the 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 people, the people pulling the strings and manipulating people like uh, Surratt, who is a very complicated character. I have to say, I'm, I'm impressed because you know, I came, I came to really like her. I mean, there's so many things about her that are admirable. You know, she's brave. She's loyal to her family and friends. You know, she's she's sensitive. She's smart. And yet she can also rationalize doing some very horrific things that to an outsider, like a reader, I suppose, can seem insane yet plausible too. I guess that's leading me to a question about what the title means. American war clearly on its surface can mean, you know, the book is about America's second civil war, uh, which you have taking place between 2075 and 2095. But it also strikes me that it's about a, a style of war or, a, or something about what the way America has fought war 
and and in your book, that same kind of war is being done to America, you know, rather than us going abroad and perhaps starting a war or supporting a war that meets our national interests, but maybe not the national interests of the people who live there. That seems to be what's happening here because, you know, there are people coming from the Boazizi Empire, which is in, uh, which are the countries of North Africa, I guess, in the Middle East. You can correct me if I'm, I'm getting that wrong, but they seem to have consolidated into the, the future superpower and the Americas on decline. And the Boazizi Empire seems to be doing to the United States what some people would say we've done around the world over the last couple centuries. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's, you know, there's, there's a temptation among some readers to pick up this book and say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's a brown Muslim guy named Omar writing a book about Americans killing each other. This is a kind of, you know, wish fulfillment or see how you like it type of thing. In reality, I mean, not only was that certainly not my motivation, I never really thought of this as a book about America. Um, you know, the title aside, and the title is related to, to um, uh, a line of dialogue near the end of the book where, where one of the characters says, you know, everybody fights an American war. To me, it was never a book about America. It was a book about the universality of revenge, the idea that there's no, you know, exotic sort of form of suffering um, that any of us subjected to, to the injustice of, of being on the losing end of a war or being on the losing end of violence break down the same way and become damaged the same way and become wrathful the same way. The book is set in an allegorical America, um, but it's certainly not in my mind, or it was never an intention on my part to to try and predict how a second American civil war would break out. Um, you know, I, I use this country as my setting, and I used it as my setting for, for some fairly specific reasons. Um, one of which being the idea of, of taking what is far away and easy to ignore and making it close to home and impossible to ignore. But, but beyond a sort of allegorical setting, America doesn't, doesn't factor in as the, as the primary, you know, uh, the primary geographic or, or thematic character in this story. The Northerners in the book aren't really Northerners. The Southerners aren't really Southerners. And if, you know, it, it sounds a little convoluted and pretentious for a writer to say that a book called American War is not really about America, and I, and I fully get that, but the trick I employed is not particularly new. You know, we see this in the opposite direction all of the time. You know, I, I, I didn't learn anything new about North Africa from watching Casablanca. It was understood that there was a setting, that there was, you know, the, the place was, was the table and there was a different tablecloth being laid over it. Some other story was being told, and this was the setting for it. Every James Bond movie I've ever seen has these um, these scenes in in um, exotic locations around the world. You know, these Caribbean islands or North African bazaars or whatever. And it's understood that there that these are the settings for the telling of another kind of story. All I did was really turn that around. You know, in 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 this book. America is is the table on which a very different tablecloth is being laid. Um, it's the setting for a different kind of story. That's interesting because I couldn't help but also think about the controversies about the statues commemorating the the Civil War, and and some people would say that they're putting a spin on on who they're commemorating, you know, were these people really heroes? Was the war really about honor or was it really about slavery? And maybe that's just inherent to any war. People go around telling each other 
stories and that's enough to, to motivate people to kill each other, even if the stories are fabrications or something something less concrete than a fact. Of course, we don't know what facts are anymore with, with our current debate in Washington. But anyway, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going off down the, <laughs> a, a weird path here. But I couldn't help think that there wasn't some commentary specific to North-South in American history. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's there on a number of levels, right? It's there on, on the, the sort of the superficial level of just the, you know, there's there's many many references to the first civil war and and analogies to it and so on and so forth, um, but I think what I talk about when when you know when I discuss this idea of of an allegorical America or this not primarily being an American novel even though it's clearly set here and, and you know or it's set in a place called America that's the future United States in a state of sort of mid ruin, um, I th- I think it has to do with this this tendency I've seen. Um, ever since I, I moved to this country, I moved, I moved to the U.S. about four years ago, four and a half years ago. Um, but I grew up my entire life sort of consuming American culture. Um, culturally, this is my first language. But one of the things I've seen since I moved here is, is this tendency among many people to think of any story that might encompass any part of the American experience as an exclusively American story, which is not true. You know, America is a very loud place. Everything that happens here happens at, at overwhelming volume. You know, in any relationship between any country and America, the resident of that other country probably knows more through sheer osmosis about America than the resident of America knows about that country. That's just a function of asymmetric volume. But that doesn't mean that the things that happen here are, are somehow unique American phenomena. You know, this idea of, of struggling with your history and uh, of of painting it in whatever colors best suit you. I mean, that's the Middle East in a nutshell. You know, I mean, I, I was born in Egypt. Half the city's bridges are named after the dates of supposedly glorious victories and wars that we probably didn't really win. Um, you know, but but it it works it works in the narrative in the favor of the national narrative to believe we did. You know, so so in a way, it discusses the book discusses America at great length. But the, the way in which it discusses it is not unique to this country. These things happen elsewhere. Not much that happens here hasn't happened somewhere else. It just happens here at a much louder volume. I wanted to just ask about one particular element of the story, just because it was so fascinating and terrifying. It's uh, both a weapon and probably a metaphor. There are something called the birds, and you know they sound a lot like our military's drones, which are supposedly intended to hunt down and kill terrorists, but they're always making headlines when they drop bombs on families and wedding parties. And I wondered if you could just explain to listeners what the birds are and why you made them part of the story. Sure. So the birds are uh, effectively unmanned drones um, that early on in the Second Civil War, the federal government uses against the, um, the rebels of the southern state. But then at one point... Uh, and this is the part where I think hard science fiction fans are going to get angry because this isn't the way that this would happen. Um, at one point, uh, the rebels managed to destroy a server farm that controls these things. End result is the drones become, they essentially fall under nobody's control. So the, the, they just fly around in the air. Uh, their patterns, their flight paths are random. And the frequency and location of the bombs they drop are random. And so if you live in the South and during the late days of the Second Civil War, you live with 
the reality that there exist these things called the birds. They fly around and they might drop a bomb at your house at random and there's nothing you can really do about it. Um, obviously, the, the, the sort of, you know, in, in physical terms, they're, they're based very closely on, on unmanned drones that are that are present around the world today. But the reason I went, you know, there's a couple of reasons why I went with this idea of calling them the birds. And, and one of them has to do with the idea that I wanted to present them as as elements of, of the natural landscape, um, as something you just have to learn to live with if you live in this particular part of the world. Because that's the reality for people in many parts of the world today, which is to say, if you live in Afghanistan, if you live in Libya, if you live in Yemen, that's the reality of it. You know, there are these things, they fly around, uh, they might be under somebody's control, but from your perspective, they might fall on your wedding day um, and it will be essentially indistinguishable from a random event. Um, so I wanted to present these things as as elements of nature. The other thing I wanted to do, and I was writing this book in, in 2014, 2015, I wanted to talk about the idea of the difference between intentions and reality, um, which is to say I was writing at a time when the Obama administration was engaged in this idea of um, these sort of so-called surgical strikes where they would find somebody who was, you know, a high value enemy, whatever they were going to call them. And they would send one of these drones out to kill this person. And um, it would all be very clean and nobody, you know, nobody on the American side would, would risk their lives and so on and so forth. And I wanted to get at this idea that this kind of precedent, this kind of uh, engaging in these kinds of tactics inevitably leads down some really, really awful roads because once you establish that precedent, over time you have no control over who the next person's going to be. Um, and so that's why I came up with this idea of, you know, we started these things as, as um, tools in the war, in the Second Civil War, uh, and now they're completely out of our control. So, you know, I was getting at something like the drone killing program is is a very different entity under the Obama administration than it is now under the Trump administration. But the precedent was set, and here we are. As you were writing the book, did you have any concerns or worries that you would get pushback for being someone who was born in Egypt and writing about a declining United States? Were you engaged in any kind of maybe self-censorship or, or hesitancy about this storyline? Because you did mention that maybe some people have been critical because, you know, as you say, if you're brown-skinned and you're writing about this. You know, I, I, I was worried when I was, not so much when I was writing it, because when I was, when I was actually writing the manuscript, I, um, I was working in my spare time. I was still working as a journalist. Uh, I had no agent. I had no publisher. I had no expectation that the book would actually ever see the light of day. Uh, and so I was writing exclusively for myself. I mean, um, American Wars is the fourth novel I've written. It's the first one that's ever left the hard drive. Um, I've been writing fiction for a long time. It's my first love. Um, but I finished those first three books and then felt that they weren't that good. So I never bothered, you know, showing them to anybody or, or trying to get them published. It was only after the idea that, you know, that when Knopf bought the book and, and it became clear that this was going to become a thing, this was going to leave my hands and, and ultimately end up being the property of everybody but me. Um, that's when I first started worrying about this idea of, you know, backlash or 
go back where you came from or that sort of thing. In reality, it really hasn't happened um, with respect to the book. You know, the, the, I've, I've done, I've traveled hundreds of thousands of miles now on this book tour. I've been all over the States um, and I've gotten really nothing but, but very sort of informed criticism. Uh, and I use that, you know, and I use that word in the sense of literary criticism, people both good and bad um, has been very thoughtful. It's been in depth. There's been very little of the sort of Twitter troll type of reaction and I suspect, you know, that that has to do in part with the idea that the kind of person who's prone to those sorts of opinions is probably not going to sit down and take the time to read a 350-page book. You know, a while back I wrote an 800-word op-ed um, for The Guardian about about living um, as a brown Muslim guy in the U.S. And I got more hate mail over that than I have over the book, you know, in, in a span of about three days as opposed to the the almost nine months that the book has been out. Um, so I was worried about it, but but it really hasn't materialized. Well, that's encouraging. I'm glad to hear that. So American War straddles a lot of genres, uh, science fiction, a political thriller. There's a mystery elements. It's a coming of age story and it's literary fiction. And all that makes me wonder if you see yourself as a science fiction writer. Perhaps that's too limiting, but I wonder how you do see yourself and if you plan to write more future-facing fiction, or if you're planning on moving in a different direction for future books? Um, I've gotten in trouble a little bit in the past for, for saying that I didn't think of American War as a science fiction book, or, or of myself as a science fiction writer, um, because I think some people took it as, as a sort of slight against the genre. You know, I write literary fiction, I don't write this genre stuff. Um, when in fact, you know, what I mean is that I, I when I read my favorite science fiction, I am painfully aware of not possessing the kind of talent it takes to write good science fiction. Um, my imaginative talent has never allowed me to write, to write quality science fiction. I've written a lot of bad science fiction. Um, I think the way that, you know, American war, if it does straddle different genres, that that comes from a place of my own very uneven education in, in, in fiction and literature in general. Um, you know, if you grow up in, in many parts of the American school system, you're exposed to a certain kind of literary canon. You know, you're going to read Mark Twain, you're going to read Hemingway, you're going to read To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, if you grow up in, in the British system, you're going to read, you know, the certain, the, the, the sort of canonical works, and you're going to get a basis from which to build your own writing. I grew up in a place called Qatar, which is a peninsula, not a very old country, a tiny country. Um, where exposure to literature was was very haphazard, almost all cultural content was censored, and so you would read whatever you got your hands on. You know, some days it'd be Stephen King. When I was about twelve, I would I would read tons of Stephen King. One day I got my hand on a on a Toni Morrison novel, and it sort of changed my life. And so I don't I think that when I write, I, I come to it from a place of very uneven uh, cultural education, uh, and the result is books like American War which more than anything is a very unanchored book. You know, the book is, is thematically about not belonging, but it also, in terms of the genres it, it might fit or not fit into, also doesn't neatly fit anywhere else. Um, and I suspect if I'm lucky enough to write another book, which is what I'm working on right now, uh, it'll also not quite fit in uh, anywhere else. Um, I don't have much of a problem with that. I just, sometimes I envy writers who are 
very, very good in their space um, because I don't think I'm very good in any one space. And was the journey to publication hard? Uh, obviously, the first three books you put in a drawer and this one you decided to send out into the world. Was it immediately well-received? Uh, did you end up rewriting it based on feedback? What was, what was ultimately the journey to publication? The journey to publication was weird as hell. Um, for a long time, it was, um, it was going to sit uh, on the hard drive along with the other three novels. Um, I didn't feel comfortable showing it to anybody. I don't have much confidence in my own work in the best of days. And so um, it sort of just sat there for a while. And then uh, I had a bad day at work. I was working for a Canadian newspaper at the time. And I had one of those days that I think all journalists um, have to grapple with, which is one of those days where you feel like you're just rewriting press releases. And so I felt that I, I was afraid that I'd wake up 30 years from now and um, I'd have a, you know, a retirement party and a gold watch and, and 15,000 uh, throwaway stories to my name. I didn't feel like I was doing work that I wanted to do. So anyway, I got off the phone with, with my managing editor and I decided, what the hell? Um, and I, I emailed uh, a literary agent who I'd met in Toronto many, many years earlier. Uh, and I said something to the effect of, you know, um, I know it's every agent's worst nightmare when a journalist says, I have a novel for you, but I have a novel for you. Could you, could you take a look? Uh, and she very kindly agreed. But three days later, she, she uh, called up and said, um, uh, there's this guy named Sonny. He runs Knopf. He might be interested in this. Um, and she sent it to Sonny Mehta, who I later realized is, is this sort of living legend uh, and easily the most intellectually generous human being I've ever met. He, he read it and a few months later, we heard nothing for months. And then a few months later, he came back with an email that just said something like, you know, I like it or something like that. And then a week later, they bought the novel and everything sort of changed from there. But I, I never thought this thing would exist in, in, on, on bookshelves anywhere. Um, so it was, a very, it was a very strange process. Wow. So the first hurdle, though, was your own reluctance to even, even show it to anyone. But, but then it sounded like smooth sailing after, uh, of course, there was the waiting period. But other than that, that's, that's an amazing story. I was beyond smooth sailing. I, I won the lottery. Um, Knopf is, is a tremendous publishing house. They gave me all kinds of freedom. You know, we went through, I think, 12 drafts of this book, and all of them were, were relatively cosmetic uh, in, in terms of changes. They never asked me to tone down the book. They never asked me to make it more commercially viable or, you know, um, uh, go down the route of, of some other similar fiction that has sold a gazillion copies. No, I got, I got, I got very lucky to work with the people I work with. And is it being sold? Has it been translated? And is it being sold internationally? Yeah, I think we're up to um, a dozen languages, um, most of which just went to print in the last few months. And then the paperback is uh, coming out in the U.S. and Canada at the end of this month, and then later in those other countries uh, throughout this year. And I just wonder, culturally speaking, which countries perhaps are most drawn to the story or what, what people think or what, they, what their takeaways are, you know, what people are focusing on. But maybe we need a little more time for that to play out. I was fascinated by the amount of localization um, in, in terms of how the book is perceived. So, for example, there's one line in the book, like literally, I think, a line or two, where one of the characters mentions that the, um, the flow of migrants in the future, in this future world across the Mediterranean um, has been inverted. Now people are moving from from Europe. The refugees are coming from Europe to North Africa as opposed to the other way around. I did hundreds of interviews in the U.S. and Canada. Nobody asked me about that line. 
Uh, I spent two weeks doing a tour in, in Europe. Every interview asked me about that. Uh, and what was I trying to tell Europeans and, you know, that that sort of thing. There's been really interesting sort of little changes in um, in how the book is marketed. Um, so, for example, um, the book in the U.S. has has this cover where there's barbed wire. You know, it's just it's it's pretty dark. There's lines of barbed wire, and some of the barbs are in the shape of stars. The Germans immediately said no to that cover for for reasons that I think are pretty pretty self-evident. In China, for example. They refused to go with the title American War because they thought their readers would would think it was too it was a work of nonfiction, and so in China I think this book is coming out under the title Nobody Survives or something like that, which is a bit of a spoiler. But I've I've been really fascinated by by the kind of little changes that happen um, in different different markets. Um, that's not something I ever thought about, obviously, when I was writing the book. That is totally fascinating. I would think people who might relish a story about America's decline, you know, would like that title, actually, American War, but um, I guess it's much more complicated than that. Well, I mean, it's, it's so for example, in, in the, 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 one, the one translation that means the most to me is the Arabic translation, because I have a lot of relatives back home in Egypt who read exclusively in Arabic, and so they'll get to read this book. But I was thinking about the extent to which it might be censored or banned in different countries, because on one hand, it presents... Um, this vision of a glorious, you know, pan-Arab empire in the future. Uh, but on the other hand, to get there, it implies the destruction of all of the despots and tyrants and, and dictators who currently run the place. And so I think that's one of the things about this book is that nobody, nobody really, um, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not too kind on anybody. And so I, I'm still waiting to see if it'll, you know, if it'll be allowed in, in all the Arab countries. Um, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a particularly partisan book, you know, like it's, it's concerned with the idea that you can understand why somebody does something without taking their side. And so I think it makes it hard to pin down from any kind of, of partisan perspective. You, you, you threaded the needle with this book. Well, thank you so much for being on New Books in Science Fiction. I, I really have enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Omar El Akkad about his novel, American War, which came out in 2017 from Knopf and will be out very soon in paperback. If you want to hear more author interviews, please visit the science fiction channel of the New Books Network. That's newbooksnetwork.com or subscribe to our podcast. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and I'm glad and grateful you stopped by to listen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.